Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast. Alrighty, happy Wednesday. How is everybody doing out there today? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn. Thank you very much for tuning in. Mr. Jeffrey Gannon, how's it going over there? It's going great, Andrew. How's it going with you? It is going fantastic. So last week we had Nate Tobik on, and we have mm-hmm. another special guest on. Yep. And his name is Peter Rabover, and he is the portfolio manager for Artco Capital, which is a small and microcap special situations concentrated fund. And um, he is a a pretty big contributor to Fintwit, which you know that we love. (laughs) And um, and he's with us here today. And his Twitter is at Artco Capital on Twitter. So, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for the uh, for the introduction and uh, and for the Fintwit mentioned that's yeah. certainly been a fun experience yeah good yeah thank you very much for coming out so every single time that we have an individual on and i asked jeff i'm like should i stop saying this as is my little intro and he's like no i mean just kind of roll with it i always talk about how i'm fascinated with this idea of stories right and how everyone's story is different and how the narrative is always being written and how you could be doing one thing one day and you meet somebody new or something happens in your life and for whatever reason it just puts you on this completely new path and today we're going to be talking about your story and i'm always really curious to hear about how people especially since we talk about investing a lot how people came to um you know get into investing and how the bug bit them uh it's interesting because if you look at guys like warren buffett for example his dad was a stockbroker and you know that's probably what prompted him to get into investing charlie munger got into investing because of warren jeff got into investing because his dad said hey you should read this book right Mm -hmm. and i got into investing because my dad was also in the business on the wealth management side so i'm really just curious to hear about you and how you got investing. I mean, from what I understand, I think you're, you said you're born in Russia, so you're from Russia. So maybe you could just sort of talk about how you got into investing and, you know, what sort of led you there. Yeah, you know what? Uh, that's a good topic and uh, probably an interesting story. So thanks. Uh, thanks for asking. Um, so yeah, we, we, we came from Russia. A bunch of Russian immigrants came here in 91 and I was 11 and I had to learn to speak English and um, and if you noticed, following my Twitter account, uh, my sense of humor got precisely from learning English by watching Married with Children for a solid five years. So that's kind of uh, it's, a, it's almost kind of a fun little factoid I, I like to share with people. But, you know, my dad has a Ph.D. in computer science and he's actually a co-founder of a pretty successful tech firm at this point. But, you know, when we came here, we came here with three thousand bucks in our pocket and kind of lived a pretty low key life. Um, but by the time I got to college, uh, Duquesne university, and I was, you know, as most freshmen, sophomores are to do, the most important question is what, what's going to be your major. And I was trying to figure it out and I probably changed it three or four times. And this was right around 98, 99 and it tech was the hottest thing you could do, I guess, much like today. 
And, you know, I went to my dad and I'm like, well, I, I should do this. I should become, you know, an IT guy like you. And which kind of was mistake number one, because he definitely was not an IT guy. But, um, you know, what, what he told me is, look, you're good. Um, you're pretty decent. But there are people out there that probably dream and code and they are, um, you know, they're, they will always be better than you. They will, they will always be great because they're just natural at it. So what I want you to do is to find something that you're really good, something that you're natural at. And, you know, and IT is not it for you. And, you know, and I listened to him and I spent a few more months. And that summer, I want to say it was a summer of 99, uh, or maybe it was a summer of 2000. I'm not really sure. But I was working at a computer lab on campus and I went to the, one of my professors, uh, and I said, Hey, I'm exploring, um, you know, majors and you're a finance pro an investment, uh, professor. So I'm curious about this. So the guy handed me a theory of finance textbook and, uh, I read it. Uh, I thought it was really interesting and I kind of, it really, to me up to that, I just thought, stock stuff was being a stockbroker. Um, and I didn't really know anything up, up to that point. And, but, but, but something didn't really sit right with me. And I, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to skip forward and I'll tell you what it was. It was the efficient markets theory. I, it, I really did not understand it. It, it was not a natural thing that came to me. And so I went back to the professor and I told him that, and he's like, okay, so he handed me Peter Lynch's one up on Wall Street and uh, Warren Buffett's letters up to that point. And I said, read this and come back to me whenever you're done. And I read it and that immediately hit me very, very naturally. I was like, wait a minute. It's like, I can do this for a living. I could, you know, read about companies and find companies as investments and, uh, and try to beat the market, you know, and that appealed to me right away. And that's something that I, you know, that's kind of got how I got started. And immediately my entire goal was to, you know, to get into investment management. I was trying to figure out different career routes. You know, do I want to be an investment banker, et cetera. And uh, in fact, I even tried to graduate college early. Um, I did uh, just so I could get into investment management as fast as I possibly could. Um, unfortunately, December 2001 was not the best time to graduate college. Yeah. Um, and I had a corporate finance job offer pulled at two weeks before graduation. And so, you know, what I said to myself at that point was what I'm going to do is I'm going to get my CFA charter and I'm just going to study for it. And, uh, I was 21 at the time. And then I, and I will try to get the finance experience that's needed to get the charter. And back then it was only three years. And then, you know, at 24, uh, once I have the charter, I will try to get into investment management industry uh, then. So I ended up working for uh, U.S. Steel and their M&A internal audit kind of group, doing a lot of due diligence on deals for about a year and a half. And uh, I got sent to Serbia. And I worked, uh, and then I, something I always wanted to do, which I felt like it was a really good opportunity, I was in the Peace Corps in Kazakhstan for two years, 
Um, wow. And I was, and I was uh, doing everything there. I was, you know, I, I was teaching some economics and English courses at a university. I was doing small business consulting. We started a microfinance fund out there. And this whole time I was, you know, studying for, uh, for the CFA. In fact, I took CFA level three in Kazakhstan and I had to, um, I was the only, there was two people in the room and uh, I had to take the train 42 hours to the testing center to, uh, to get there. And so that's kind of how, and once I, once I finished Kazakhstan and I was 24 and um, literally my last week there, I had my charter sent to me in Kazakhstan. I still have it in the wrapping that got sent to me in Kazakhstan and uh, I don't think I've ever taken it out since then. And, uh, you know, and then I came back to the United States and um, I got a really good job with a really reputable fund in San Francisco called Han Capital Management. And, um, you know, I, there's certainly an element of luck involved in career and I couldn't have been, couldn't have gotten lucky, more lucky than getting that job because my boss was great. He was really committed to my growth as an investor and, you know, he really let me run with a lot of things and before, before long, he promoted me to senior analyst and I was managing like one third of the portfolio and it, it was just a really, really good experience and really taught me a lot and, you know, sitting in front of, you know, watching the market drop in 2008, just like I watched it in 2000, 2001 as an undergrad managing our student fund. You know, I think that sort of really shaped my uh, my view of the investment management world. Like, right, stocks are fun and they go up and they go up until they don't. And when they don't, they go down 50 to 80 percent. Um, and so I, I kind of view all of my investments and my start to my career through that prism. And so my the, the number one question I always ask myself before I even look at, you know, what the stock can make or how um you know how this is going to work is how much am i going to lose you know if i'm wrong how much am i going to lose and so you know I, I know i've kind of strayed off the topic a little bit but i i, I do want to jump back to it so you know going back to the story of my dad telling me that um i needed to be something that i'm good at and that i'm natural you know i certainly wasn't that good for for a long time but I, I think I've developed the skills um, to to realize that you know you don't need to be good at picking stocks. You actually need to be good at everything else. You need to be good at accounting. You need to be good at uh, you know stra strategy, marketing, and understand how businesses work. And only then can you really become a good stock picker. And so I think you know having that corporate experience, having that Peace Corps experience um, was actually one of the more beneficial ways for me. Um, and even before the, the audit uh, M&A job, I worked for, I, I did it, I had an internship for a year at a treasury department of a Fortune 500 company. And, you know, I saw a lot of things there. And I think that experience was really very valuable to me, much more valuable now than I thought it was back then for me to be a, a good investor now and to see things more naturally than, you know, than in the past. So, I don't know, I kind of went off the tangent. No, that's great. I mean, I'm, that's definitely a very uh, unique background. And I'm sort of curious about how your experience from being an analyst at a fund um, was and then translating to actually running a fund yourself, right? Because obviously, 
and and Jeff and I sort of talk about this sometimes, and especially when we meet with um, new potential clients for our managed accounts firm, because people sort of ask about our dynamic and how we work together. I always say how a lot of times when people specialize in something, um, especially like business related, and they do incredibly well, they decide to go off on their own. Sometimes those individuals fail because obviously running a fund is much more than just investing, right? So now you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with raising capital, you're dealing with marketing the fund. So I'm sort of curious to hear about how that translation was from just being an analyst all day um, to actually running a fund in your own fund. Yeah, you know, and it, it, it's funny, I'm actually, you know, I'm in the process of writing my third quarter letter uh, as we're recording this, and I'm trying to focus it a little bit more on the aspect of portfolio management than um, stock picking as an individual thing. And I think that's probably at the top, to answer this question, at the top of the list has certainly been an interesting transition to stop thinking about companies as, you know, as an individual companies and more in the context of portfolio management. Like, how do they fit into your portfolio you know, is there are there better opportunities than this thing? And, you know, sometimes selling a company is not necessarily has nothing to do with your thesis on the company is that there's probably a better fit into the portfolio longer term than that particular one. So it's certainly been an interesting transition because the one thing they don't teach you in business school, they don't teach you in undergrad beyond, you know, efficient markets, frontier, etc. you know, how the portfolio management aspect of it, like, right, that, that sort of, I don't know if I've ever had a class on, on, or a case on these things. Like, how do you decide how much the stock should be part of the portfolio? And I think, you know, as a young analyst, you get very, um, you know, you pitch a stock to your boss and to the investment committee, and then you get dumbfounded when, you know, it's, you know, something doesn't happen or they ask questions that you don't think are relevant to the thesis. And, you know, and in retrospect, as you're older, you realize that how much more relevant those questions are to the aspect of the portfolio rather than the individual security. So I, I, I think that's certainly been an interesting transition. Um, and I, I don't know, portfolio managers aren't born, they're made, right? Um, everybody, every portfolio manager was once a security analyst. So, uh, and I don't think that transition is talked about often enough, to be honest. Um, but as far as starting my own firm, that has certainly been a an eye-opening experience or, you know, a great experience. I, 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 I never want to work for anybody ever again. Um, but, you know, just talking to your clients. Uh, I host a, you know, a partnership dinner every year. And, you know, this year was awesome. We had like 40 people come and, you know, Anything from sending out invites to going to going to the restaurants to making sure, uh, you know, how much is this going to cost? You know, what drinks are there? That's that's silly stuff. To you know, talking to lawyers about can you take on separately managed accounts? What's the process for that? You know, should I be an LP? Should I be an RIA? Um, you know, which accounting firm are you going to choose? Right. Um, you know, haggling over fees with your service providers, like stuff like that, you really don't get to experience as an analyst, you know, who's, who's, you know, whose only job is reading 10 Ks and making recommendations to your boss. So I, I love it. It's certainly been, uh, I, I really love, you know, we have 35 LPs now. Um, 
and you know it's a pretty diversified thing and i i have some really cool lps too like from very very high-end vcs to former professional athletes to really successful entrepreneurs and um you know i really try to become friends with all of them you know i i had an lp of mine um ask me to help them crew crew them in an ultra marathon race uh a few months ago because i'm an ultra marathoner and so was he and he's like well sure you know come and you know we had a great weekend together uh or i have a former football nfl player and a uh, former uh, and a and a managing director at a really reputable top top two VC firms in the world, or I guess managing partners, what you would call them. And, you know, I got two of those guys together for dinner one night and drinks. And that was a fantastic conversation. Some really great stories, uh, which both of them, I think, enjoyed hearing. So it's stuff that you never, ever would ever, ever get to do if you're a PM at Fidelity or, um, you know, if you're an analyst at Tiro or something like that. And I'm thankful for these opportunities every moment i get no yeah that's that's incredible and what was your experience like working at um another fund i mean where so you were an analyst and you said you got promoted relatively quickly to senior analyst how long were you there and and what what type of fund were they and maybe you could sort of talk on that because i'm always i mean you, you now you're a small and a micro cap and a special situations fund is that what they focused on there as well no actually so the two funds that i worked at um and uh, i guess i I guess I can mention them because you, you can always look it up. So they were called Han Capital Management and Sharf Investments. Um, and one was mid-cap value and one was large-cap value. And so let me give context. My goal from probably 23, 24, once I figured out a little bit more about the investment management world, was to always start my own fund. And I thought I was going to do it at 40 started at 35 and now I'm mad at myself that I didn't do this earlier. But I'm also very thankful for the experience that I got at those places that I would never would have gotten. So let me, uh, so it's a two pronged question that you asked, what was the experience and what were they focusing on and why am I focusing on micro cap? So they were very, very large cap and mid cap focused. Um, and one, and they were very, they were both value oriented, but their processes were as different as night and day. So I thought that was like really interesting. For example, the large cap fund wanted nothing to do with talking to management. You know, RPM thought all CEOs are crooks and, you know, you're only going to get more bias from talking to them. And whereas the mid cap value fund was, you know, they have to talk to management. They would not buy stocks in companies where they could not have a call or a meeting with a CEO or a CFO or something like that. And so, um, you know, in the first fund, I got to talk to probably like two or three hundred management teams, and I, you know, certainly thought that was a, one of the better aspects of the of the experience. Uh, and then the second one, we we barely we barely did not. You know, in fact, I think at a certain point we owned like three or four hundred million of AIG stock. And um, and we've never called AIG. And, you know, I was in New York City and I asked my boss, I'm like, well, you know, I'm here. Should I try to go meet with them? And he was like, begrudgingly, he's like, OK. And so I called them up and they never heard of me. And then I, you know, and I said, I'd like to meet with the CEO or talk to the CEO. And they laughed at me. 
And then I said, well, we own like, you know, $400 million of your stock. And within two days, I, I got to sit down with Ben Ben Moshe for a little bit and wow. you know, meet with him. So I, I thought those were all kind of like very interesting experiences that I, um, but to, and, and, and so they really kind of shaped uh, my, my view. You know, I think a lot of these things is, um, experiencing what happens when the stock goes up, when the stock goes down, you know, seeing all sorts of cases, I guess, you know, much like a business school, almost every stock is a case analysis. Is it, is there an accounting issue? Is there, um, you know, what's the growth story, et cetera. And, you know, that's been very fascinating. And I think it's definitely a numbers game to feel more confident. And as I transition to a second part of your question, you know, the more interesting part of it was seeing which kind of companies the larger companies acquire and why they acquire them and how they pay for them. And um, and I think there was like a very a period in 2007, 2006, 2007, where, you know, our mid-cap value fund had 33 companies and I think 12 companies got acquired from our portfolio. It was definitely somewhat an amazing experience and you know and i think i tweeted about this the other day one of the last acts i did for the uh for my midcap fund is i put in valiant pharmaceuticals as a uh, as a four percent position um at five dollars a share in late 2008 into the fund and so how what what did they do for sequoia you know sequoia let it run up to 30 percent of their fund and whereas you know, our fund kept it up at 4% and they sold it every, you know, every time it got up to 6% and they sold it back down to 4 And so they did just fine. And, you know, I think they, they kept doing that all the way through 200s. And I wasn't there anymore, but I, you know, I, I catch up with them once in a while. And, uh, but that's worked out really, really well for them, right? And a wealth that worked. They, they didn't need to be so greedy and they focused more on risk management and, you know, a few a few years ago, I was really in, hot and heavy into Kodak warrants, and they worked for for a while until they didn't. And you know, they went from two and a half percent position in the portfolio to like eight percent position in the portfolio. And realistically, I should have you know pared down, um, but uh, I did. And so when it, when the whole thing blew up, you know, that I ended up having a really bad quarter. I think we lost like five or six percent on. Um, uh, on that particular position. So all those were super interesting experiences of experiencing losses firsthand, um, you know, watching 2008 happen before, before your eyes, I think losing money or like being wrong in a lot of investments certainly checks your ego at the door. Um, so again, those were great experiences and I'm thankful for them. But having started my own firm, you know, I think we all sort of know that um, active management um, after fees, it has a, you know, it's almost like a random walk on Wall Street. There's a book about that, that, you know, I think after 10 years, you know, nine out of 10 managers will end up underperforming after fees, their benchmarks, especially in the, you know, in the larger, more covered space. And so, you know, I said to myself, I'm like, well, how do I, what kind of product can I, can I give my clients um, where I'm still able to charge the hedge fund two and 20 fees without feeling like a crook? Like, without, how can I, you know, take somebody's money and charge them these fees? And, um, 
you know, and then at the end of the day, knowing full well that, you know, they're better off in an index fund. And so I realized, you know, unindexable securities and I kind of looked around and I just realized that, you know, there's always going to be a subset of companies, uh, micro caps or spinoffs or uh, warrants or like very illiquid uh, stocks, you know, they're not that are very closely held that will, you know, that will always be there and that you can't put in an index. Um, or eventually they will be put in an index, but that's a, you know, that's part of the value creation rather than, uh, uh, you know, um, so, you know, I kind of settled on the micro cap, small cap stuff. And, um, you know, I think like 80 or 90% of my stocks are not in an index. And the ones that are, that are in an index are, were put in there, uh, before, um, I think I only have one that's kind of heavily owned by some micro cap and small cap indexes. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, and that required me to kind of do the back of the envelope math and to say, well, if this is the strategy that I want to do, what's my ultimate size? And, you know, I think the ultimate size for this particular fund product is 50 to $100 million. And I kind of have a hard promise to my investors that I would close the fund at $50 million. I'm nowhere close, so let's not. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, but we're getting there. And I, so I think that's been the trade-off. And that's um, and that certainly has prevented me from raising money from bigger institutional investors because you know for for a lot of them you know having a fund that's you know less than three hundred million or five hundred million is you know uninvestable. Whereas for me, you know, I probably wouldn't take a five million dollar check because that would make me a you know overly dependent on one client and that's not something i would be comfortable with so it's certainly been a very very interesting experience in that sense thinking through it but um you know i, I i'm building a business that's diversified and i'm i'm having way more fun uh finding these companies and discovering them than i've ever you know i've ever had in mid cap and large cap world and just you know knowing my experience from the large cap and mid cap space, um, you know, ha is certainly helping me um, with my theory that there are great companies in the micro cap and and in the small cap space. They're just they're never going to be ten billion dollar companies, right? They're they're always going to be because of their markets that they serve are you know maybe like a hundred, two hundred, three hundred million dollar companies, and then they're probably better off in somebody else's hands. And so that's. That's kind of the long way to answer your question. Yeah, and do you find have you found that you like um, like microcaps, for example, because they aren't in an index? I mean, you've seen the chart that's everywhere on Twitter. How um, that like what like a majority of the S and P five hundred ga uh, gains this year have come from like five different stocks, and I don't know. Just from working with micro uh, microcaps in our firm, I like it because it's almost like the stocks tend to act on their own performance metrics and I guess their own fundamentals instead of just being up or down because the market is up or down. Have you found that to be the experience with you as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's and I and I find myself to enjoy that a lot more, you know, and. I mean, there's there's certainly a lot more volatile, right? Uh, I think the and there's a lot more opportunity for fraud and shenanigans and experienced management in this and inexperienced management. Sorry, in this particular space. So I, I think you have to be a lot more focused um, on the due diligence aspect of it 
than you would um, on the um, uh, on you know you would have in a large cap. Like right, there's a lot there's a lot more blow ups and micro caps than there are in large caps. You know, your Enrons and Lehman, you know, excluded. Um, so yeah, I, I certainly find them to move in very very different directions than the markets and you know there was a uh i almost want to find it i'll send it to you after but uh and i i would really love to get my hands on this report if somebody did a follow-up but goldman did this um study you know almost 10 years ago i guess and they had these quadrants of the returns by size and liquidity and and it was like nine quadrants i think it's like my very first tweet almost on that thing and you know and the most the smallest least liquid stocks you know are their annual average is like something like 19 percent over over like 30 35 years and i'm like well why wouldn't i play in this particular space you know i i think i think all i think by focusing on the reason that it's you know 18 19 percent um is in not more is probably because there's a lot more frauds out there and i think if you have the skills of rooting out you know just not investing in stocks that could get you into trouble and so to that end i just kind of stay away from leverage and i try to stay away from complex stories or think or like you know um complex business models like and things that i don't have competence in like biotechs or you know or or just mostly like tech companies i find by staying away from that i you know it's i'm limiting a lot of the risk that comes with microcap investing you know what's also interesting about that chart because i wrote about it to one of our or to our investors um two months ago and i've also tweeted about it and we've talked about that that chart a lot um that you just referenced if you look at microcaps um like illiquid microcaps, they've done 18 to 19%. But if you look at liquid microcaps, I'm pretty sure it's like flat to nothing. And it's interesting how as they go from like mid caps all the way up to large caps, even in the large cap space, the illiquid large caps always perform better than the liquid um, the liquid ones do. Have you, have you seen that as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, so the other thing, you know, Harping back to your question, um, sorry, I don't know if harping is the right word. I didn't, didn't mean to sound rude. Um, <laughs> just, uh, just going back to it is, um, is I had I had known this, and I know there's certainly a lot more volatility and liquidity, and I think uh, one of the bigger lessons from 2009, 2008 period with a big short was for me having um, um, the sorry now i the michael burry case where you know he was very convinced and he had all these liquid securities in his fund and he had all these you know capital calls from his investors that didn't want it and so you know that that's kind of my ultimate nightmare is in my business so i actually ask all of my investors you know i tell them that this is more of a kind of a semi private equity fund almost with some with the liquidity risk that we take so i ask them for three to five year commitments and so you know while it's been a very big hindrance to raising money the investors that i get as a result are much better suited to the strategies in the micro cap space and so i you know i think the reason those opportunities exist is because even in a large cap space is because 
people try to invest with, you know, matching the duration of their investors, um, you know, so they can't just take that liquidity risk, you know, they don't want to. And for me, I'm like, that's, that's the best part. Like, right. Like, you know, I have stock, some stocks that trade like, you know, $10,000 a day. Right. And it t- like, you know, one of my biggest positions, it's, you know, it's taken me a year to build it up to, to where we, to where it is right now. Um, just buying a few hundred shares a day here and there. And I can, cer- I certainly can't get out of it. Um, um, and so, yeah, I, it's certainly been, um, I, I look for that. I look for the liquidity, whereas some investors are like, no, I can't buy this cause it's too, it's, 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 it's not liquid enough. So it's kind of a, different way of looking at it yeah no i I completely agree so i want to sort of uh, shift gears to talk about arcos um i guess like how you sort of structure your portfolio if you want to talk about it like i'm curious to hear about um are you long and short um i know you we could talk about tesla later i'm pretty sure i saw a couple tweets that you own puts in tesla so i don't maybe that's the way that you um play you know the downside on companies but like how many stocks do you typically own in your portfolio and maybe sort of hit on that yeah and uh you know you're kind of hitting like right on my letter that, that i'm writing so this is kind of a preview of my letter and so uh, and you know from the start I, uh, you know, let me just take a step back. You know, I'm a value investor at heart. And I I think we talked about this. And I, you know, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, see rule number one, the old Buffett adage. And so to that end, you know, the majority of the portfolio is, uh, you know, is focused on the old school value margin of safety stocks. And, you know, about 80% of the portfolio is in, um, I want to say, you know, between eight to 12 stocks that are anywhere from six to 10% positions, or I feel that the price that I paid for them when I first got into it, you know, provides me a pretty good margin of safety. And I think the strategy is there is there's a lot of uncertainty ahead of them, but the risk that they'll go, that they'll go under or, you know, there's lots of assets back in them or, um, you know, or their, you know, their business, they have a very stable core business that would be very good in somebody else's hands. And then there's always an implied market, private market value for them. Um, So I I tend to focus the majority of the fund, of the big concentration for the fund in those sort of stocks, right? And that's, you know, the way I, I view that, the view that bucket, the core value bucket is, you know, high margin of safety, low downside risk, and, uh, and obviously the unindexable aspect of it. Having said that, you know, there's, um, there are plenty of interesting situations out there, um, instruments, um, you know, occasional shorts, um, something like that, that you, you know, you have, uh, there's no margin of safety is, is what I'm saying. You know, there's, uh, uh, you know, you could probably lose 50 to 100% on those investments, but you could also make up to 1000% on those investments, you know, up to 2000, something like that. Like, right, those are very high multi-bagger type of situations. And so, you know, I tend to view as a value investor, not only on the down on the downside, but more on the risk reward ratio. And that's, um, you know, how much reward am I 
getting for the risk that I'm taking on. And so those positions tend to be anywhere from one to two to three to four percent. Um, you know, the, the, the great thing about those is that sometimes you hold them enough long enough and, you know, you feel much more comfortable with them and then they become positions in the core portfolio or, you know, you're much more confident in their downside, et cetera. And uh, it's certainly been kind of a farm team almost for the for the core portfolio. We've had a couple of positions move from that one. And, you know, those are those are nano caps. Those are warrants. Um, those are bankruptcy kind of pink sheet kind of companies. Um, and it's a much more volatile part of the portfolio, uh, but it, it does serve a purpose. And so, you know, when looking at the whole portfolio from the, from the risk reward basis and trying to manage the portfolio to having a low downside, but also you want to you, you want a good upside, you know, occasionally. Uh, so at just pure short sales don't usually fit into that bucket because, you know, um, you know, you're looking it, if you're looking for the absolute return and, you know, I'm not dismissing short, you know, short selling as a very beneficial um, part of having a market neutral portfolio. Or you know, kind of having a very good diversification benefits. If you're running, if you're running a long, short, diversified book, uh, I think those strategies are great. And you know, and I applaud people who are doing it who are doing it. And I could certainly name a couple of funds that I respect that do it on this podcast. Um, but uh, as a standalone investment, shorting, you know, where you're, um, you know, your upside is capped at a hundred percent, but usually it's like you know thirty to forty, while you're downside is almost unlimited that kind of flips the whole risk reward ratio upside down like right it you know to me if i can find micro caps that are can offer me you know two to three hundred percent upsides um i'm not looking for things that can offer me 30 percent upside right and so shorting usually tends to you know that's why i don't usually look at shorts um having said that you know i've taken a few put positions in the past two to be exact uh one was the snaw seed company and that was a 50 basis point put position and i followed it for about three years and then there's moneygram a you know the moneygram deal with and financial and i followed moneygram and their deals and their and their ongoing war with euronet for almost 13 years to feel very comfortable taking a put position in that deal, knowing that it was going to blow up. So I, I needed a much larger confidence level for it to be in something like this. So this, which brings us to Tesla. Yeah, it's certainly not a micro cap. It's certainly not a, um, anything that you could be value added, added, but the disconnect between the fundamentals of this company and the stock price is, um, and its balance sheet, which is kind of the key thesis for me, um, you know, Elon's antics aside, is pretty big. Where you know warrants, if you or if you buy the puts and you know you're kind of diligent about it and buying them, you know, on low premium days, you can get really nice, um, you know, five to like five, six, seven percent, uh, or sorry, risk reward ratios there. Like right, so for every two to three percent uh so it's a, i think it's a three point three percent position for us and 
well, and that's as of today, because it kind of ran up a little bit today. Um, you know, I certainly think this something like that can provide almost like a 20, 30 percent upside for the portfolio um, in the uh, next six to nine months, which is kind of where they go out. So that's a very different situation, because in this particular case, I think, you know, Tesla is not going to go. If Tesla goes down, it's not going to go down like twenty percent. It's going to go down like seventy or eighty or a hundred percent. I was going to say, are you expecting the company to like go into bankruptcy, or what's your thought process on that? I mean, I, if if I had to split it out into buckets of probabilities, I, I think there's a ten, twenty uh, percent chance that Tesla and Elon survive, and you know they thrive and. Um, and they, they make the cash flows and they self-finance and, um, they get past this really rough patch. Um, uh, I think probably a 50% scenario is they will have to issue some very, very expensive, um, capital either through a very dilutive stock offering or, um, recapitalization or, I mean, look, they're, this is before Elon's anti-SEC rants today. Um, let's just say that it's four four fifty on October fourth. Just so we're we're we're. For- yeah, I want to read the tweet. I want to I want to read the tweet and see what you said what you think about it. So so he tweeted just so everybody. So today's October fourth. This is going to air um, next Wednesday and at three sixteen p.m. our time. So after the market closed, he had a typo in this tweet, but he said, "Just want." I'm just going to read off. Just want to that the short seller enrichment commission is doing incredible work. And the name change is so on point, exclamation point. So clearly mocking the SEC after his run-in with them. So, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, Twitter was going crazy. I couldn't believe it when I read it, honestly. I was like, oh, yeah, my gosh. I, you know, I certainly think there's some possible drugs involved. Maybe his lawyers locked in the bathroom. But, you know, this is all very fun. Like, let's not – this has definitely been the funnest thing I've seen. And, you know, as 2018 has been death. so interesting, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, taking a step back from all the noise um, and just seeing through the effects of, of of all this, I mean, I think so. Going back to my you know earlier buckets of probability, and I think there's probably a twenty thirty percent chance it goes to zero, right? Uh, they're they'll they'll just won't be able to pay their bonds, or they'll you know one day they won't be able to meet payroll. I mean, and and this thing will collapse. Like, you know, if you remember Enron, you know, it took Enron five weeks to go from saying we're, we're voluntarily, you know, talking with the SEC to filing bankruptcy, right? These things, you know, go slow, go slow, and then all at once. And, um, I mean, his antics, I mean, I don't know how you're a board member and you can stomach this, uh, but the issue from today you know, I think it's going to be much more difficult for them to raise financing, you know, especially if he doesn't settle with the SEC. And the the reason he's kind of probably going nuts is because the judge today wants him to write a letter, you know, kind of saying why he's not a fraud or, you know, why that that wasn't fraudulent, that he deserves that deal. And, you know, with a guy with an, with his ego, I think that's probably what set him off. Um, and certainly not doing himself any favors. And so, I mean, I, I'm going to say the probability of the bucket of going to zero just increased by you know 10%, like something like that, just a handicap number. But, you know, like I said, I, I the one thing I've certainly learned over the years is to stop looking at stocks and, um, 
um, companies in definitive grandiose terms, like, you know, Kathy Wood of AKR saying that, you know, this is a $4,000 price target, like, right, that's a very definitive thing. Whereas I, I tend to look at it as almost like a blackjack hand counting cards, you know, like I know what's on the table and I know the odds of me getting this particular card are pretty good or pretty bad. Right. So I, you know, I, there's a lot of things that always happen that you don't anticipate, but in this particular case, you know, in Tesla, the deck is full of face cards. It's a, it's a single deck and it's full of face cards and, you know, uh, you have really good odds of getting a blackjack here is is what i'm saying so that's kind of um you can probably lose a hand or two but you know in the next few months but realistically i think this is a winner yeah it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it plays out he kind of reminds me of martin screlly in the way that like he was publicly acting and the way that he and now the way that elon's publicly acting where he's just kind of like not going quiet and just kind of like laying low he's kind of fighting back very publicly and like i guess kind of trying to make a fool out of them i mean the difference between martin and elon is that elon can afford much better lawyers than martin and they don't seem to be doing a very good job i mean I, after that settlement on Saturday, um, and then reading the story that he threatened the board that he would resign if, if they didn't issue a statement saying, you know, he has lots of integrity, you know, is this, (laughs) is this the person you want to be invested in? Is this the capital? Like, you know, I, I, probably the most fascinating thing to me is, you know, having been in this business and, there was a period I want to say between like two, when I was in business school to between to the time that I decided to launch this fund. I, you could almost consider me a professional interviewer in, in in this in this space, and I have had opportunities to interview with some of the smartest people on Wall Street, and you know some jobs I turned down, some jobs I didn't get, um, but I, I've certainly seen the range and gamut um, of very smart investment managers and and i you know some people's thought process i disagree with you know but i can see how they think that i've never met with anybody that i can point to that can justify owning this this thing as a long so i i can't get inside the head of james anderson and you know bally gifford or the tiro or the fidelity guys what they're thinking or how they're thinking. It's fascinating beyond anything for me. It's like, how can anybody do that? But, you know, and this isn't, you know, one of the best books I read so far has been this Bad Blood book, like, right, how yeah, you a know, great the Toronto thing came about. But the difference between Bad Blood and, and Tesla is that a lot of that stuff was private and they were hiding everything, whereas everything with Tesla is out in the open. There's, there's people flying drones over their parking lots. So... I, I don't really, uh, you know, if you're a diligent long, you know, you have to at least pay attention to the short case. And, you know, I think they make a pretty compelling case. So the, the people who are sleuthing out there. So I, I, <laughs> I, I'm baffled as to the reasonings behind the long, the people who hold it. The risk that they're taking on is tremendous. Yeah, it's interesting too because um, you're in you're in San Francisco, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I've been in like SF area and it's interesting because a lot of the people that don't come from the finance world, they idolize Elon. At least that's how it was with my experience. And I'm sure that's kind of weird for you because you come from the finance world where you think everything with Tesla is probably more smoke and mirrors, but then like every individual I'm sure that's there or that you talk to a lot, I'm sure a lot of people are rooting for him. Yeah. You know what? I, I, I've certainly had a few, uh, Uber rides where I ended up engaged in conversations with, with, you know, either a pool drive or something like that. It's certainly people just don't see it, but you know, I'm going to take your statement and kind of reverse back to you. I actually completely understand why Elon is behaving this way and why he's so frustrated. Because if, if you look at his background, almost all of his companies have been private Silicon Valley companies, you know, PayPal aside, and that got sold, right? But the, the culture here is to lie. Everybody knows that you're lying to raise money. It's just the it's just the name of the game. And and it's you know, Toronto's thing aside, you know, everybody goes out and makes these wild projections and you know the VCs handicap those, but at the end of the day, um, you know, that's that's what they have to believe and that's what they base their markup valuations on. And so in the context of Silicon Valley, like Elon's behavior is not any different than a lot of people here, but in the context of a public market executive, and this is where he's butting heads with the SEC, and this is why he, you know, this is why I'm getting a little bit emotional about this, is because I think he's really bad for public markets. He, you know, he, you just can't go out and say things that are not true, that are you have, you know, zero basis or zero foundation for saying that, and that's, you know. And this isn't the world where your your equity gets marked up every quarter by you know based on your projections, right? Where like some where where your accounting firm is like you know does a DCF based on your projections and like yeah sure we'll mark it up. Like this is the case of daily liquidity, daily value, and Elon's ego is very much tied to the stock price. And so you can see like he does this at every moment. He pumps up the stock and. Um, this is why I, I'm really worried. I, I in my micro cap space, you know, I'm just really worried that this is going to spawn like a thousand, you know, little Elons uh, if this he's allowed to get away with this, and then you know, maybe this market will become uninvestable. You know, if anybody can get away with saying whatever they want with no basis in the public markets, you know, how can we trust the system? Sure. And so, and so that that I, I honestly that's that's. That thought has kept me up at night a few times. I, I'm really worried about it. And, um, I, you know, every few years we go through this soul-searching, hand-wringing thing. And Michael Lewis actually had a really good, uh, I'm going to call it a book, because uh, it, it was a book. It was called Panic, but it was a collection of articles um, over the last, last crises from like 1987 on where, you know, you go through, he has a bunch of articles from the, this euphoria right before the crash of like everybody's grandma is investing in stocks. You know, the, the Thai guy in the 97 Asian crisis sold his hot dog cart so he could, you know, invest in Thai stocks, etc. And then, you know, you have the crash and everybody's panicking. And then there's like a month or two of soul searching. How did this happen? How could we prevent this? You know, and then all the lawmakers start screaming. It's like, you know, this was fraud. We, we need to prevent this. Then they put on regulations. And then a year or two or three years later, you know, the same people are screaming that 
and these regulations are stifling and then we go back all over again 10 years 10 years seems to be the point where people forget what happened and things are all, once again allowed to kind of get out of control and i and i think we're kind of at this point and so i think it uh, we almost need a tesla crash to bring back some normalcy to the market where people start paying attention and um you know, so something's done about it. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely going to be interesting to see um, what plays out. I mean, like I said, Twitter in 2018 has definitely been, definitely been pretty interesting because of Tesla and pretty entertaining too. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the amount of work that the, there's people out there that are doing, um, it, it's pretty incredible. But I, you know, I would also say I, I certainly don't want to get into thesis creep or thesis bias. So you know, once a week I'll check myself. I'm like, what is the long thesis? And, you know, where could I be wrong here? And I, and I just haven't seen being massively wrong so far. Sure. You know, just, uh, every, everything, everything that Elon says is a stock manipulation scheme. I, I saw this great quote that said, you know, Tesla is a penny stock that just happens to trade at $300. And, then I'm kind of sticking to that. Yeah, no, that that's gonna be great. I sure want to shift gear. So, do you invest in spinoffs as well? You know, I, I I've had some success. I think uh, I think uh, I, I have in the past, and that's worked out pretty well. Um, and some failures, sure. Um, but I think that particular asset class went from this like undercovered thing that you know you had to go and set you know pull uh you know your edgar online reports to see which companies have um you know are filing for for the spinoffs whatever the and um like the registration statements etc to you know there's a dozen subscription letters you can google spinoffs and the the amount the information out there m- it's no longer the undercovered asset class it used to be. And so I think there's probably, again, unless it's in micro caps and um, you're, uh, you're, you're probably not getting as much of a competitive edge or informational edge there as you would be able to in the past. So while I certainly look for them, uh, I'm less... Uh, excited about them now as I would would have been 10 years ago. Gotcha. What's your research process like, um, especially with investing in microcap stocks? You know, I'm still pretty old school. I, um, I, I like reading the financial statements. I like reading the, the, the 10Ks. And, um, you know, I, I have a lawyer friend who writes the 10Ks for, uh, for large companies. And, um, for his law firm and he explained to me like the process that they all have to go through to put certain words in there. And so, you know, suffice it to say that anything's in there went through a pretty rigorous legal process to get in there. Like, right. With, uh, so to me that those are still almost like the best things to read. Um, and you know, one of the better things about Sarbanes-Oxley, um, you know, I, happen to be still a fan you know a lot of people are not um but it does require the or i don't know if it was sarbanes oxley but i think it was um it did require the ceos and the cfos to start signing financial statements and uh that's something i've been paying attention to a lot more um so i you know a cursory 
a cursory look at um, at the at the financial statements that a 10k could certainly make or break uh, an investment. And in fact, I've uh, in microcaps, I've started to read the proxy statement uh, either simultaneously or um, or at least as the, as the number two thing to read for companies just to see what the motivation is, what you know, who owns what. Um, and that has always stayed true with me. That hasn't changed, but you know, I, I think in this particular day and age where there's so much information available, um, I have certainly refined my process, you know, you know, you could post polls on social media. Like I think a few years ago, I was like looking at coach and I was like, you know, I, I get it. It's a very interesting company. But, you know, I, you know, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I think I have like 1500 Facebook friends. I, I haven't, I, nowadays I barely log in there, but you know, it was much more popular four or five years ago. And, you know, I posted a poll. I, I, I asked them like, Hey, who buys coach? Why, why do you buy coach coach? And I, and I had like 50 responses from women and, and, and it, and it got me like a very, very good idea of the market and who buys it, like, you know, and why, and why they buy it. Um, you know, I think, um, gosh, uh, what was I, what was I thinking about? Um, there was like a retail, uh, you know, uh, it hasn't worked out as well, but destination XL was one that I looked at was a retailer and retailers are not good, but I, I had asked a bunch of my friends in finance in different cities to stop by destination XL and to take pictures and tell me what they think, you know, you know, what their experience has been like, um, Etc. So those are certainly certain things that um, you know you can look you can look at LinkedIn and see which executives have left and why they left and what are they doing now. Um, you know, I there are a lot of additional things in your process that you can do nowadays that you weren't able to do 10, 20 years ago. Like right, so and you can be creative. Like right, you can. Uh, you know, the access to information has been amazing. Like, right. I, I, um, one of the better things that I, I kind of tweeted the other day, but the congressional research service now ha is opens to free to free reports. I, I now have like three reports open right in front, right in front of me that I'm reading about, you know, it's a free consulting arm of the Congress. Like, right. So I'm like, they, they put out pretty deep primers or on certain industries. So here we are, like, right? There's like, and they're not written by a sell side, sell side person. Um, I think I've certainly, in a microcap, there's less sell side, but I, I almost never read almost any sell side stuff. Um, the other thing that might surprise you, it certainly surprised me, because uh, it hasn't been a nightly, or it hasn't been like a, a turn on and off switch. It's been kind of an evolution but I talk to a lot less people, a lot less shareholders than others. And, you know, and I think that surprises people um, that than in the past. Um, and I have a lot of people that are share, you know, shareholders in my companies that always want to reach out and talk to me. And I think, or short cases, I actually take calls from shorts a lot more than I do from longs because I, I just feel like it creates more biases and it clouds your judgment, and um, and I would say that's been part of my process. I, I think I've um, I took a step back on the things that I've been wrong in the past, 
And I think the things that have been there, why I hadn't acted earlier or hadn't seen this earlier, had been because of present biases that were laid, laid in there by other people. And so I actually tend to stay away from biases and I tend to stay away from too much information. Right. Um, I, you know, the 80, 20 rule where to me, I think I can get 20% or I can get 80% of the information with 20% of the work. And, you know, I, I rare, rarely do I go to the 90, 10 stuff where like, you know, where, where I, you know, do the additional 10% before I make that decision. Um, but I've certainly done it after I bought it. And I think there was one company where I just didn't feel comfortable and I sold out at, even, even though I, I bought it before, um, as I got more work done to it. Um, so I think those are all sort of things. I think I've refined my process to incorporate the new forms of media and the new forms of information. And I've certainly let go of, um, things that cause me more biases and hinder my process, such as talking to other people. Yeah. And it's great, I guess, because I mean, we sort of talked about that too. Like, I guess being a journalist and going beyond the 10K to do research on a company and there's just a bunch of different ways you could scuttle about it. So that's that's pretty interesting. I'm curious to hear about, do you use screens to come across ideas? I mean, like for me, for example, sometimes ideas just sort of jump out and I think Jeff, it's, it's similar with him. Ideas just sort of jump out and then you'll spend maybe, I don't know, 30 minutes on an idea and Maybe if it looks interesting, you'll spend another 30 minutes on an idea. And if it still looks interesting, then we just sort of decide, okay, we're going to go deep on this and and have some deep work on it. But I'm curious how you sort of come across ideas um, to decide like if it's worthy to, I guess, do some deep work on it and learn more about it. Yeah, I mean, I, I it's a pretty diversified idea stream. I certainly don't rely on one source and screening is still part of my sources. Um, you know, I'll give you an example of, you know, one of the more interesting ones that I own is something called the village supermarket. And I think if you Google my name and village supermarket, there's a report that Jeff's I very familiar with the company. Did you own it? I owned it as a teenager. I worked there as a teenager. Yeah. Jeff owned it it's as a teenager. First, it's one of the first stocks I ever owned. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I, so I owned it. I owned it before. And then I, you know, it went, it ran up from like 23 to 36 and I sold it at 36 and then it came back to like 22 again and I bought it again. Yeah. You're talking so to like, a past employee. Jeff was the best, uh, yeah. the best employee that company has ever <laughs> seen. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, so to that end, you know, I, it, it popped up on a screen on an ROIC screen mm-hmm. and you know, this is where my large cap experience kind of came about and I used to cover grocers like the Walmarts and the Costco's and Kroger's of the world. And, you know, I was like, how is this tiny? It was curiosity. I was like, you know, it popped up on an ROIC screen and it was a supermarket. And I asked myself, I'm like, how does this thing have, you know, mid teen ROICs? Like, right. So it was a curiosity and more than anything. And that led me to discover that, you know, they are part of a co-op and they own like 13% of this, you know, whole, this food distributor thing. And, you know, it's called Wakefern and Wakefern is one of the largest food distributors in the United States. And probably, you know, that has billions in revenue and that, uh, you know, and they pay out a dividend and they get, you know, they get pay out, you know, all their earnings dividends back to a village and then they obviously village gets, you know, shared services like marketing. Like Village is essentially a franchisee of uh, ShopRite, 
right? And Wake for Known is the franchisor of of Wake of Shoprite. Um, so in reality, the reason I own Village is because I own, you know, I, I like owning Wakehorn, you know, the, the 29 or 30 stores that Village owns are they're kind of a nice to have, but they're not, they're not the real value thesis there. But to answer your question, that's kind of how I screened this. It popped up on an ROIC thing and then I got more curious and I had, you know, did a bunch of research on Wakefern and what their, you know, what their value is outside of Village. And I realized, you know, you know, Village is a three hundred million dollar stock. Their stake in Wakefern is probably worth you know seven to eight hundred million on its own. Now, having said that, is that ever gonna? Are they ever gonna realize that value, or is there gonna be a transaction out of it? Probably not. But does it provide a really nice margin of safety? Uh, yes, yes, it does. And so, you know, there's context there that this is um, this is something that can probably grow at you know double double digit. Uh, growth and pay out special dividends once in a while and can i get a you know can i get a nice 15 percent growth uh 20 percent growth in, in this stock year you know over a five-year period um you know it's certainly going to be volatile yeah i think so with without taking too much uh you know capital uh downside risk yeah and we have a ten thousand word report on village on our website there you go. So we'll, we'll, we could get that over to you if you yeah, want. Yeah, we will it. send that to you. Yeah, no, I, I I would love it. But you know, I certainly had planned. I I didn't know that you uh, that you owned it. So good coincidence. But to answer that question, right? So you know, to to answer your question, you know, this Twitter thing's also been great. I I I, I probably get like one idea a day from somebody sending it to me in a DM. Now a lot of times it's college students that like you know that they're kind of trash. <laughs> but you know, once in a while, I, I I've certainly gotten an idea. I, I had you know one of my investors, uh, or you know, sent 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 an idea over to me that I've been looking at that I that I kind of like. Um, I like going to conferences. I like talking to management. You know, like like I said before, I think you know management. I'm not as extreme as my old boss who thinks managements are crooks, but I. I think a skill developed having interviewed, you know, hundreds of managements, hundreds of CEOs is being able to spot right away who's kind of a, you know, who's full of it and who's actually in sincere and genuine guy. And I'll be honest, you know, uh, Spartan Motors, a stock that I really like, I, I really like their CEO. One of, you know, I went to a conference, uh, I got a one-on-one with them as a uh, a friend of mine, who, the sell side guy, uh, you know, he's like, "Hey, would you mind sitting down with them? They kind of need a filler." And uh, I, I was so, in the forty-five minute conversation we had. I was sold. I, you know, I was excited to go home and check and dig into this thing. And you know, so that that's kind of an example. So, yeah, you, you know, it, it's a pretty diversified idea stream. You know, I, I one of my bigger investments is joint chiropractic, and I, you know. I, I had a really bad back issue last year, so I, I started I didn't want to go to the doctor and had and have you know wasteful back surgery. So I started looking at alternatives, and uh, you know this one popped up, and I was I was really curious, and it turned out to be a really interesting company. That's that's so funny. Yeah. So you know I I, I think it's just being open to to having a different uh, different idea sources left and right. Yeah. But like I said, screening. 10ks friends telling me about about stuff it's it's i, I have no shortage of ideas I, I it's weird to me when people tell me it's like man like you know it's like you know do you need it like 
like, how do you find new ideas? I was like, man, I, I have a bench of like 10 stocks that I would love to own at the right prices, you know, already. Like, right. Like I, you know, I, I have people, I have companies ready to step up to take a place of somebody else in my portfolio when they're ready. So you mentioned warrants. I think probably the people listening to this don't really know what warrants are. Could you tell us what they are and how you would value them? Yeah. I mean, uh, warrants are just, you know, long-term equity options. They're leaps like, right. They're, they're just the difference between them is that the market maker writes the warrant uh, or writes the call option um, and they're loath to take on, you know, three to five year risk, whereas the company writes you the warrant option as a as a financing kind of thing, because a lot of times they have trouble getting financing or getting equity and they kind of write it as a kicker to entice you to buy more of their equity. And then those warrants become tradable, for example, like, but they also have some very different terms. You know, a few years ago, you know, I still think they're interesting, but I'm not, I'm, I sold, I made a little bit of money on the AIG uh, TARP warrants. Uh, you know, TARP, TARP was a long time ago, but, you know, the U.S. government, lay, in order to provide financing to AIG, laid out some pretty stringent terms. And those, those warrants had incredible, incredibly, uh, shareholder-friendly terms, including like uh, a, a dividend adjustment price, and um, there was the CVR, or the contingent value rights uh, provision that added a little value. But taking a step back, you know, to me, warrants are just a super leveraged way to get much better returns in something that you know than owning equity. So, you know, a lot of times there'll be a company that, you know, that, uh, that I don't want to buy because it has debt, like, right. It, may, it might have like leverage, but I think it's interesting enough that, you know, um, that I would not mind owning a one or 2% warrant position and, um, in, in it, like, right. So, because I think if I'm, if I'm wrong, you know, uh, I'll probably lose half of that warrant value in time value. Right. Because, you know, so if I buy a two percent position over the next three years, the time decay will probably take it down to one percent of the portfolio, or something like that. But if I'm right, um, you know, I I it I think it certainly um, uh, you know can provide you returns that are you know ten twenty times uh, on whatever on that position, right? So you and know, did you example, own so, Hostess brand warrants as well? I think we sort of the chatted what? about that. Hostess brand warrants. Did you own those? Yeah, I mean, I so uh, you'll be the first one to know, I, I guess, before the letter. But I did so, so, sell out of them. I, you know, I made some money and I taken some profits, and they haven't done as well. And I think the story kind of fizzled out a little bit. Uh, but you know, I, I th th those were successful. So people, a lot of people have knocks on SPACs, and for those who don't know, they're special purpose acquisition companies, and there's certainly been some really major failure ones. Uh, but I think there are some things that you can look at to find to figure out which ones are going to be really bad and which ones are going to be really good. And I, don't know if, I don't know if I can tell you off the top of my head, but I think, it, you know, the corporate governance and the assets, I think the assets underlying the company are, you know, so one of the biggest posit warrant positions we have is uh, in a company called, uh, I think it's Rose Hill Resources. Um, I just, it's in the, and ticker is Rose and the warrants to Rose W and it's a SPAC and it, um, and they have warrants as, as a result of the equity offering and the warrant, you know, the other thing you should always read is, you know, what are the terms of the warrants? So a lot of them have 
have caps at prices. So for Rose Hill, the cap is $21, but the stock is $6 right now. And then the strike price is 11 So the most that warrant could be worth is somewhere between $9.50 to $11, right? And then the price is about a dollar right now. Uh, but taking a step back, right, Rose Hill Resources is a an EMP company, uh, and I don't really like EMP companies, and that's why it's a special situation. Like, um, but you know, they taking a step back. I was actually head of energy for the large cap, our energy book for the large cap value fund. And let me tell you something: I was not a fan of owning EMPs, but this one was uh, was an interesting one because they're new. Nobody covers it, and most EMPs are traded either on. Um, on their reserves uh, or EBITDA if the reserves aren't available. So this particular company was trading at two times EBITDA, it still is, uh, 2019 EBITDA, while their peers are trading at six to seven. Uh, at this point, they're in very good, uh, they're in very good land position, but because it's a new company and the majority of their land that they acquired was this year, they don't show up on any screens on a price to reserve ratio or EV to reserve ratio uh, but they will start in 2019 because they have really good land with really good uh, with really good reserves, um, where their competitors have been able to book or they're in the same area have been able to book some really good reserve numbers. And so, this thing, I think it could easily be a $25 stock. Um, and so, those warrants are their dollar. They're only going to time decay because there's so much underwater. So the downside risk there is not like a, you know, it's a long-term downside risk. But the upside is about a thousand percent. And I think that's a, that's a you know, 10 to 1 risk reward uh, for a company with, with really good assets that has a bunch of value creators on the horizon, such as the refi of the balance sheet um, that's going to happen this quarter sometime and the publishing of their reserve numbers. And in the meantime, they've been kind of kicking ass, um, you know, with their production numbers and their revenues and profitability. So, you know, so like I said, sometimes warrants really provide like really good opportunities for you as uh, as special situations. The funds can't own them. You know, It's more inefficient. Like, what was that? I said it's more inefficient, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I think... Talking to a lot of people about owning options, um, a lot of people look at them and then, you know, they really concentrate on the Greeks, uh, like, you know, the Vega, the Theta, all yeah. that stuff. Oh, you get the and time decay, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and look, I, I'm not knocking it. I think it's a great, great way to, uh, to look at it. But I think they end up missing the forest through, through the trees of, you know whether that warrant is $1 or one or one ten, you know, the upside there is, uh, and somebody won't buy it because it's one ten or one twenty. He's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like the, uh, like, you know, the Vega is out of control on this one. And you're like, man, like, I, I think you're kind of missing the point that this thing's going to provide you a thousand percent return, um, you know, in the, in the near term. And that's kind of, um, I, I look at it from the risk reward perspective, not necessarily the pricing, um, how efficiently is it priced relative to its Greeks, right? So I think that makes me probably an outlier and maybe not the best efficient buyer of these things. But um, 
but yeah, that's kind of how I look. Yeah, I mean, you're sort of thinking about it more so from an investor's perspective, I think, than just a trader's perspective. I would, I would probably categorize that. Right. I'm looking at it from the opportunity of the next, you know, these warrants expire in five years. I'm like, can I get there? Can yeah. I get to 21 in five years? Like, yeah, I think so. Yeah. No, that, that's that's great. So you briefly talked on um, how you, in, in the microcap space specifically, you focus on companies that have sort of clean balance sheets. Are there other qualities that you like to see when you're, you know, doing due diligence on these businesses? You know, I, uh, yes. I mean, I certainly like insider ownership. Um I've made exceptions in the past. Um, you know, I, I, I think, let me, let me get a little candid here. Um, you know, I started, I started this business with, uh, I'm 38. Uh, I started this business with, uh, w- with nothing, with one $25,000 account and I'm kind of growing it, but I, I, I haven't certainly been rolling in the money, uh, in this particular day and age. And, you know, I think you're kind of trained from the time that you're a young analyst to say, hey, insider ownership is important. Like, right? Like, you know, but I don't know. I, you know, as a Russian immigrant that came here with like $3,000, I, I don't know. And most of the CEOs are um, of microcaps. They're not exactly, you know, they're not 65 year old men, you know, they've been in this business for a really long time you know, that have built up significant wealth, you know, they're probably guys in their 40s that got their first shot and they were probably lifers at this company or something like this. So no, they, they you know, unless they founded this company, they're not, you know, they're not going to be able to to go out and buy like, you know, have $3 million worth of stock on this like, you know, $50 million company. And so I, I sort of sort of take a plight on that. And I what I try to do is like, you know, if this guy is hungry as I am, you know, he wants to get rich, like, right. So I, you know, I want to make sure he has the opportunity to get rich. And in a way, having somebody not uh, have a lot of ownership, but has the potential to have a lot of ownership or has the bonus structure to become rich is almost as important as ownership for me. Like, right. I, so one of my companies is, you know, joint chiropractic and that's what I really like, but you know, the big knock on them is that their CEO only owns like a few hundred thousand dollars worth of shares, but he's a young guy. He's, you know, probably in his like mid forties, I think like late forties. And, you know, and I, I asked them like, how come you don't own it? It's like, Hey man, I got a house. I got kids. Like, yeah. right. I, I, I got to put these guys through college. And I, and I get that. Like, right. Like I, you know, I, yeah. it's a candid answer and I like that. And I, and I appreciate him, him having that. Like, right. And uh, I'd rather hear that than some BS blow answer. So to answer your question, yes, that's, that's, that's part of the process. I like companies that own insider that have insider ownership, but that's not necessarily something that would preclude for me, but it would be a difficult hurdle to pass through. Um, you know, I, I think I'm naturally gravitated toward companies that have a, uh, diversified, recurring revenue base um i I really like that or have some sort of hard to replace asset on their balance sheet um as kind of a margin of safety so um you know though i'm attracted to those sort of companies um uh i definitely do not you know micro caps you see this a lot but there are customer concentration risks and 
I generally just stay away from that because you know something, if you have a 20% customer that's like an Apple or an Amazon or something like this, that might be bullish for somebody. But to me, me waking up one morning and seeing a headline that that this like you know this customer decided not to renew this business and you had no way of knowing that there was like no competitive edge there's no advantage that you could have had on something like this um that you know i just don't want that don't want that risk and the company's down like 30 percent that day and you know so i stay away from customer concentration um those are certainly certain things that i um stay away from so there's you know um i've made exceptions for leverage in the past and i i i don't want to do that again. I, you know, um, the companies that I've gotten in trouble with in this, you know, in my few years here, even, even in these bullish uptimes have been companies with debt. Like I can't even imagine what's going to happen when the market turns over and the interest rates start rising. Uh, you know, and a lot of these small caps have variable, you know, variable interest rates arrangements and, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you can't really pay. You can't really make interest, or yeah. you have to, or you have to rewrite your covenants and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, okay. So that that kind of answers that, I think. Yeah, no, that's that's great. So one of the, I kind of want to uh, bring this to an end here. And one of my favorite questions to ask um, investors that come on the podcast is, how do you think individuals that are listening um, can sort of improve as investors? Yeah, I, I mean, I. I hate to say this in this business, it's experience. Um, experience counts for a lot. Um, I think one of the things that having run this firm and this wasn't my original intent, but it's just more of my personality. I'm very transparent and I try to be very transparent about my process, my thought process. And, um, and that's because, you know, I one of the ways I look at investments is um, would I be able to write my letter in my letter, like, you know, a page about this and not compromise my integrity or not compromise my process. So I guess I would recommend to somebody who's trying to become a better investor, um, you know, think about it, think about it like that. It's like, is the could you justify owning this thing based on the strategy that you are employing or, or trying to justify um, if you had to reveal it in a very public uh, setting? And, um, and I think that's really helped me become a best pass on some things that I liked owning um, and, um, you know, or, and that's certainly been one. Uh, I would say, you know, I think the old adage of just reading as much of financial statements, listening to as many earnings calls uh, or transcripts and uh, as you can is probably one of the best ways you can do it. I don't know what the number is. Is it, 10, is it 110Ks? Is it 210Ks? Um, it's, uh, it's certainly a... It's a volume business, volume experience business. Yeah, and you know, and I, and I would say that, like, right, I pick up a 10k nowadays, and I know exactly which pages to go to first. Like, right, I always go to the auditor letter and the internal control letter, you know, to see do I even waste my time on this? Let me just, you know, see if they got these things under control. And I know that because you know of how many 10ks I've, you know, 
reports that I've read. Um, and that's stuff that you get with experience. Like, right, like I immediately look for the balance sheet liabilities. I read the risk disclosures as much as I can. Um, so that's that, that just repetition and knowing which things work and which things don't. And I would say that's probably my second advice is read as much as you possibly can. Yeah, and I would agree with you because, I mean, especially for me, one thing that I've learned is as you read more 10Ks and I guess about more uh, or a bunch of different businesses, um, let's say I'm going to learn about a new company tomorrow, I feel like it's a lot easier for me to figure that company out because it'll remind me of a business that I've learned about in the past. So it's almost like there's that pattern recognition that's there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I. I agree with that. I guess I would say the, the the third thing I would say is investing is inherently a psychological game and paying attention to your emotions and your and your biases and always trying to filter them out is probably one of the a lifelong thing that you can do. Yeah. And like, so like taking the munger toll on it and just being aware of them. I mean, I think that's the best because obviously biases are inherited in our nature, I think, but, um, you know, a way I would think to sort of, I guess, improve on them is just know that they exist. So you could sort of guard against them. Yeah. And I guess the, the thing, the thing I would say is, uh, I guess it's the fourth thing, but investing tends to attract some egos. Um, and, I guess my advice is check your ego at the door. Like, right, the, be- the, best, the best investors uh, are not ones that, you know, in order for you to be a really good investor, you just need to have a 53% batting average and then you're in the top 10% of all investors. So take your losses as opportunities to learn something rather than, you know, than, you know, my experience with Destination Excel and Chico's in the past and a few others, like, you know, I'm very rarely going to invest in retail. <laughs> you know, it's just not something that I'm good at. Not something I'm going to bother to spend my time with. But yeah. that t- takes a few takes a few years. You know, and I'm not going to sit there and be like, it, like you know, two years from now, I'm be like, man, like this one particular retailer, like that's it, that's the one. You know. I, I hope not. Yeah, and that's quite all right too, because obviously there's there's a ton of other ideas out there. Well, Peter, I can't Jeff and I can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast. What's a good way for people to get in touch with you if they want to? Yeah, I mean it's uh my email's probably the best. It's Peter at artcocapital.com. Um, you know, I certainly welcome uh questions. Uh I'd really rather not get trolls. Uh but <laughs> uh, that's certainly been uh, a somewhat negative experience of, of being more public. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that's the best way Peter at Arco capital or just my, I guess my Twitter account, Arco capital is, uh, is another way. So that is awesome. That is awesome. Yes. We definitely recommend following him. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in with us here today at the focus compounding podcast. If you do like what we are doing, and you want to help us out, um, feel free to go to your podcast app and give Jeff and I a rating and review on uh, the app that helps spread the word. And that is how iTunes works. Also, if you do want to get access to Jeff's weekly memo. Yeah. That Which is comes out on Monday now. Monday. Yeah. So it comes out on Mondays now. <laughs> Jeff wanted to sleep in on Sunday. No, it comes out on Monday. Uh, feel free to go to focuscompounding.com and on the homepage, you'll see a spot to enter in uh, your email and that will get you on the list. Other than that, we hope everybody has a great week. We will see you next Wednesday. Take care.